All right, we have uh, reached journey's end on the Lord's Prayer uh, for the sermon series. And so we'll be in verse 13 this morning as we close out what Christ has been teaching us about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, My hope is that you will not walk away from this thinking, yeah, 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 I got it. I understand the Lord's Prayer now. Can we move on to something more legitimate or deeper? No, no, what I hope that you have seen is that the Lord's Prayer, while it is something that we're very, very familiar with, which, as you know, familiarity can actually breed contempt or disdain, so be careful about that. My hope is that what you've seen is that the Lord's Prayer contains very, very deep waters. And then in every phrase, there is, it's pregnant with vast meaning and a variety of confessions about the various things that we say we believe right? And so as we finish out, uh, my hope is that what it will do for you is help enrich how you see the Lord's Prayer, how you pray the Lord's Prayer, and your respect for how great Christ is and how wonderful he is, and that even in just a few short lines, he could say such deep things. My, my, also, my hope is that what you have seen is, is that the Lord's Prayer is all about the glory of God. Every phrase is pregnant with meaning as far as how we should glorify the Lord our God. If you miss that, then you miss actually what the Lord's Prayer is about. Then when you pray, give us this day our daily bread, you think you're just asking for something instead of recognizing that what you're, what you're truly requesting is that the Lord would give you everything you needed in order to be able to glorify him, you're recognizing your calling as an ambassador of reconciliation. Your missional calling, as it were, as abused as that term is. And so I want to take just a second to make sure that we um, just recap the Lord's Prayer real quick, especially that uh, the, the two people that Christ told us not to pray like. So who was the first person, and you can participate by the way, uh, it's okay to speak out. Um, so, so who was the first person that, that Christ said, don't pray like this person? The hypocrites. Now what, what was the hypocrites' problem? Who, who was their audience? Who? Man. Their audience was man. They wanted to make sure that everyone around them had a sense of their piety. They wanted to make sure that you could hear in the phraseology and the, uh, and the elegance of their ability to speak of this God that they may not even know, as it turned out, being that they were hypocrites. That, they, that you would think that they were something that they weren't even concerned about actually being. And we recognize the plank in our own eye in that sense, don't we? There are times when we are in circumstances where we're far more concerned as we pray as to what the people around us are thinking instead of who the true audience is. Who's the true audience of one? God is. And so Christ says, you should pray under all circumstances as if you were in a prayer closet. So he wasn't commanding that you couldn't pray in public. What he was saying is your mindset under every circumstance ought be that you have but one audience. You should only be concerned with how your words glorify the Lord your God and please him. Not that they are pleasing unto man. There was another group that he said, don't pray like these folks. Who was it? The Gentiles, right? And so the Gentiles, what would they do? What was their deal? Well, they like to heap up bunches of phrases, right? They thought that you could grab God as if he were a tiger by the tail, which I don't know if any of you have ever, I don't know where that phrase came from. If you ever grabbed a tiger by the tail, it goes kind of poorly, actually. Just take my word on it. Um, And so you, you can't grab a hold of God with your phrases and your words and your stilted theology. You can only 
only recognize that he is good and your father. And in that, that is where you should speak from. Remember what he said. He said, the Lord your God is, is a gracious father. He already knows what you need and is moving to, to take care of it even before you can speak it. That's how good he is. So you don't need to worry about trying to heap up all these phrases and, and try to control the Lord your God with the right way to do things, as it were, in this sense, in the wrong heart. And so then he says, but based on who God is, who is your heavenly father, who moves to meet your need even before you can speak it, you should pray then like this. And he starts off with what's most important, right? Which is, which is our needs. That's where he starts, right? No, it's not where he starts. Where he starts is our father. Right away, we have to confess, one, that we're not in this alone and that we're a family. The plural stuff really begins to come into to play. And so we recognize that as a family, we have a father. And if we have a father, we have a father who loves to give, give good gifts. And all of the theological freight that comes with that phrase comes in that moment, in that speaking of those things. And so not only is he near to us as father... He's also other than us because he is in heaven. Remember that otherness is good. How many of you would make a good God? We'd make terrible gods, every single one of you. Myself, most of all. And so, thankfully, he is other than us, which means he can redeem us. And so, our Father who art in heaven, and the first thing that we should be most concerned with is the hallowing or the glorifying of his name. And remember, that looked a lot like what Habakkuk prayed, and that is the whole point of Scripture. Remember, why Christ came was to redeem us, but the redemption is in him evidencing the glory of God, right? I mean, the greatest evidence of God's glory is the redemption of his children. How beautiful and glorious and sweet is the aroma of the gospel in that. And so when we say we want God's name to be hallowed, we are asking for all that redemption and reconciliation would come into fruition, right? And so then we say your kingdom come, your will be done. So again, we're we're saying we want that the things that you want, Lord, we want your sovereignty to come into the fullness of being and we want it to be on earth as it is in heaven. Remember that phrase actually is connected to the previous three petitions. And so we want us, we would love for things to be made right. And if you wouldn't love for things to be made right, I'm just not sure what planet you're on. If you look at this world and you think, ah, as long as, as long as that junk doesn't come to Kennesaw, we'll be fine. As long as that junk doesn't mess with the beauty of Ackworth, Georgia, which is where I live, by the way. As long as it doesn't mess with the beautiful horseshoe that is Ackworth, Georgia, and its beauty and shape, we'll be fine. Is that true? Is it true that we're fine as long as those things don't happen here? No, that's not true. In fact, it's to forego the plurality of, of those terms, the pronouns that it relate to us. And then when we move to give us this day our daily bread, we are well prepared to recognize the words of the, the, the Proverbs from Proverbs 30 verses 7 through 9. We recognize, Lord, give us everything that we need so that we would not forsake you so that we would not turn against you or do anything that would dishonor you. Give us, give us what we need physically to glorify you. Amen? And then we said, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we talked about that last week, how important it is that we recognize that we are in fact debtors. Debtors, hopefully to mercy alone, 
but debtors in the sense that we have failed to keep God's obedience. Remember what Herman Witsius taught us? Our first debt is to obedience and our second debt is to divine justice because we have failed obedience. And if we be forgiven, we should be the most forgiving people of all. Probably one of the best compliments I've ever been paid on a sermon came from a young girl in our congregation whom I won't name or embarrass. But her response was, I wanted to go out and forgive everybody I knew. Would that we would have the faith of a child. Would that that would be us. Is that us? No. No, no, no. We, we, we cordon off. There's a few we would be okay forgiving, but there's a few we'd like to see destroyed in fire. Judgment will be just fine with us. And so the, the Lord is teaching us that we are to, in order to display God's glory, we, we have to be the most forgiving people of all. We have to give freely what we have been freely given. And if we who are not holy, who are not omniscient, who are not omnipotent, who are not eternal, who did not write the law, how can we withhold what the one who did did not withhold from us? Right? If God would humble himself, as Richard Sibbs says, how can we not? And so we come to the final petition, <laughs> which some people divide into two separate petitions, and that's fine. But either way, we'll get the heart of it. And then the doxology, which is the closing aspect of the prayer. And so as we, as we have caught ourselves up, please remember that all of those things, all of those things have one purpose, and that one purpose is to glorify the Lord our God. That should be the sole purpose of our prayers. That should be the sole purpose of our lives. That should be our existence because that is where life is truly abundant. When God is glorified, we, we are glorified because we are created in his image. And so as we come upon this petition, the key truth that I want you to get from this sermon is that though we are saved, we are forgiven. We continue in weakness to need God's sovereign leading and protection in the Holy Spirit in order to be able to display his glory in and through our lives. That's really, really important because it's, we know it's true, right? What if God saved us and then he stepped back and said, all right, you guys take it from here. I, I got you back to zero. I got you to neutral, clean slate. Y'all roll from here. How many of you have it, you're, you're doing good so far. Your slate remains clean since your salvation. You have not sinned one iota. Well, it's a good thing that Jesus pays past, present, and future. And so we know that we continue to need the ongoing presence and work of the Holy Spirit between the now and the not yet, that we cannot go this on our own. So I have a question for you. That, that I'd like for you to answer honestly, somewhat rhetorical, don't go yelling out. Um, but has your life, since you've become a Christian, gotten a whole lot easier? Hasn't everything gotten better? I mean, don't you just, aren't you just like, like those Cymbalta commercials? You're now dancing through the weeds, like you've got this super Cymbalta flowing through your veins called salvation, and you're just running through the weeds, not weeds, I'm sorry, running through the flowers, really running through the weeds is truer, right? Running through the flowers, the sun shines always, the wind, the cool, it's always there. Since you become a Christian, is that not you? Did we sell you a bad bill of goods on that? 
Do we sell people a bad bill of goods on this sometimes? Suggesting that becoming a Christian, now everything gets easier. No, actually it doesn't because now you are, in essence, at war with almost everything around you. Culture, uh, uh, art, media, politics, your brothers and sisters in Christ, on and on and on. It doesn't get easier. In fact, it means you've got to think more about it. In fact, it now means you are responsible for something. In fact, it now means you've got to forgive where before you, it didn't matter. You didn't have to worry about anything. You could do whatever you wanted until judgment day. You had from here to, to judgment day, you could do whatever you wanted. But now as a Christian, you've actually got to think about it. You've got to consider how your actions now affect other people. Right? How fun is that? How fun is it to, to worry about, man, if I make this decision, what's it going to do? What's it going to do to those around me? Now, some of you are like, I, don't, I still don't do that. I'm a, you know, well, you should. Um, and, and, and how much deeper we've got to consider the, the ripple effect of things and how we now are global. We have to be global in our thinking. Right? We, we can't just hide and say, as long as it doesn't come here, we'll be fine. And so, there are some key challenges that we now have as Christians that we never knew, never had to deal with, never even cared about as non-Christians. Listen to what John Calvin says about this passage in his commentary on Matthew. He says that we showed from the former petition, which is forgive us our debts, that no man can be reckoned a Christian who does not acknowledge himself to be a sinner. And in the same manner, we conclude from this petition, which is deliver us uh, from evil or lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We conclude from this petition that we have no strength for living a holy life except so far as we obtain it from God. Whoever implores the assistance of God to overcome temptations acknowledges that unless God deliver him, he will be constantly falling. See, isn't this one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life is that now when you mess up, it, it, it hurts different than it did before. You recognize what it does to the glory of God. You recognize how it affects those around you. How keenly aware do you think I am as pastor who is worthy of double judgment both from you and from God. Who, I, I, I say one thing wrong. I lose my temper. I cut you off on the freeway and you know who I am. Uh, I, I, any of those things. Anything that I may do, it's under a giant microscope. And that just comes with the territory. But consider, if, if I didn't have the Holy Spirit to uphold me, if I didn't know that God was present with me, how in the world could anybody bear up under this? Scrutiny. And many of you feel it in the same way. Some of you want to be the perfect parent. Some of you are so concerned that, and you think that if your kids don't behave a certain way and how that's going to reflect on you, that you're, you're going to be destroyed. And you put so much pressure on them to be perfect that they don't come to know the Lord their God. They don't come to know actual forgiveness. What they come to know is law. And the law is sword. Some of you feel this way about work. And some of you as students feel this way about school. You think that if you don't have a 4.0, you're going to die. Well, let me tell you something. I've got three, four degrees and 
Uh, I've done fairly well in all of them. And you know how many times that my grade point average came into play in the getting of a job? Let me, I'm going to count it up real fast for you. None. Not one time. Now, maybe you say, well, that's because you, you've got lame jobs, dude. You're not going after the cheddar that this dude's going to make right here. You're not doing that. No, no, no. I, I, trust me. Don't, don't give yourself an ulcer. Don't destroy your worship. Don't forsake the Lord your God in the pursuit of a perfection that no one is going to clap for ever. Some of you do it to yourselves in a number of ways. But here's the truth. As Christians, I mean, if John Calvin, for crying out loud, says we're going to fall, we're going to fall. And we're going to need help getting up. And we're going to need protection. And we're going to need this petition. And we're going to need to pray it, understanding what it really means. So when, when Christ says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let me deal with straight away a couple of issues related to the Greek. That doesn't mean you can go to sleep. I'm not going to spend long on it. There is quite a bit of uh, discussion about the word translated temptation. It really is probably more accurately, and, and this sounds arrogant for me to say, since as you look in your Bible, well, wait a minute, scholars much better than you have said temptation, so who are you? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, a strong collection of scholars that say, really, this is about testing. I'm going to say to you, I don't think it matters. Temptation, testing, tomato, tomato. It all feels the same probably to us when it's bearing down on us. Either way, we are being faced with a choice to either glorify God or not, whether it is temptation or testing in this case. The other exegetical point to be made from uh, the Greek itself, it says, but deliver us from evil. That's not actually an unpersonified evil. It's, it's, it's actually the evil one. So it's a, a very personal relational evil. It is Satan himself. Now, why does all that matter? Well, what this should call to our mind, what this petition should bring immediately to our minds is a couple of images, at least. One is the entire book of Job. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, there's a part of us, if you've read the book of Job, none of you is so arrogant that you would say, sign me up for the trash heap. I would love to have all my children killed Wait a minute, hold up, hold that thought. Don't agree to that. I would love to have everything I've ever built burned flat to the ground and taken away from me. I would love to have my spouse turn on me and call me to curse God and die. I'd love to have a group of friends show up. One who thinks he knows everything because of a dream he had. One who thinks he knows everything because he studied a little bit of theology. And one who thinks he knows everything because he knows everything. And then some third, fourth dude just show up out of nowhere and thinks he knows even more of everything than the rest of them knew. Yes, yeah, sign me up for that. How many months can I do that, covered in boils, and scratching myself with a pot sheared, dealing with people who say, maybe if you weren't such a horrible human being, the Lord your God would not be so angry with you. Maybe if you just repent, all this would just go away. As if God were mechanistic. As if there were no relationship. As if God can't use suffering for glory. So that is some freight behind this. But also the temptation of Christ himself where Satan assails him for 40 days in the wilderness. Where he has to deal with fight after fight after fight with the evil one himself. 
So pregnant within this petition is our recognition that we are not Jesus and we are not Job. We are weak. Even in our savedness, our forgivenness, we would never charge hell with a water pistol, as I've heard some pastors say. We would never say to Satan, bring it, if we knew who he really was, the principalities and powers. We would never be so arrogant as to step outside the hedge of protection and not call for God's sovereign presence to protect us at all times. See, to not pray this means we don't understand where we are. We don't understand the depth of the fallenness and the brokenness of this world. And to not know is to lose generation after generation after us because they see it. They see it. And so what Christ is teaching us is several things are pregnant within this. And when we say, and lead us not, who are we recognizing who is sovereignly in control here? Who are we praying to? Are we asking Satan to leave us alone? Are we talking to Satan here? No, who's leading, who leads us wherever we go? Ultimately, God does. In fact, remember Job. Remember, it was Satan who said, man, I, I've seen Job and I want to kill him because I hate him. Isn't that what, the way the book goes? No, it's God who offers Job. It is God who leads Job into that test, that trial, that temptation. It is God who delivers him. It is God who protects him. It is God who says how far Satan can go. And maybe you're thinking that brings up a whole host of issues. And yes, it does. But one issue that it doesn't bring up is us being uh, adrift in a completely and utterly chaotic world. If God is not sovereign and evil is in any way on par with God, what hope do you have who are neither of those? What hope would we have if there were not a redeemer who lives? If they're not an arbiter who could stand up and say, no, no, he, she is mine. You cannot take them from my hand. See, if evil were as strong as we sometimes act like God's sovereignty is weak to, we would be cannon fodder, caught in the middle. In fact, it would be much like Greek tragedy where the gods are battling and we're just caught in the middle for their entertainment. But fortunately, no, we are not. God is sovereign over all things. And so we can turn to him and say, Lord, would you not lead us into a circumstance that is going to cause us to be outside of your presence? Would you not lead us into a circumstance in which we in any way, shape, or form would not glorify you, that we would fail to love you, that we would fail to know you are near? See, that is, that's a good prayer. That's not a prayer of a... Uh, just an utter weakling who's scared of everything, but that's one who recognizes the gift of what they have in the presence and the glory and the beauty of the Lord our God. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we recognize that it is the Lord who controls all things. It is the Lord's glory that is most important. We also recognize... <laughs> 
that ultimately it's the evil one who seeks to destroy us. That's why the rest of it is, but deliver us from the evil one. We know that it is, it is Satan who longs to destroy the very image in which we were created. If you want to destroy the glory of God, you do recognize what must be destroyed, right? You, me, all of us. You understand that Satan is not looking to build an army. He's not looking for worshipers. He's looking for food. You cannot satisfy him with your life because life in and of itself is evidence of the glory of God. You can only satisfy Satan in death. And so when we pray to be delivered from these things, we are calling for life more abundant. Deliver us, Lord, from the very jaws of death itself. And we are asking that the Lord would be the one who would guide us. Think about Psalm 119.105. Lord, let your word be a lamp unto my feet, a guide unto my path. See, Luther speaks of this and he says that this petition makes no sense at all unless you're willing to be a student of Scripture. You can't pray this and not be in the word because that is where the leading and the guiding truly is. That is 119.105. If we say, don't lead us that way, we're implying that you would lead us this way. Remember the beauty of what God said to Isaiah. He says, he says, I will be with you. I will lead you to the right or to the left. He even said, I will be with you when you walk through the fire. So this, this petition is us profoundly confessing that the Lord our God is sovereign and that Satan does not have the final say and that he is the one who delivers, that he is the one who decides. God, that is. And we are recognizing that we don't want for even a second to be outside of his presence. Think about Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he said, when he was in agony, remember we looked at that back at Easter and he was just so broken and he says, may this cut pass from me. Because he himself did not want to be separated from the Father under the weight of those things for even a moment. And if he who is perfect understands it that perfectly, how much more ought we say the same thing? How much more ought we say, may whatever cup of testing temptation, may it pass from us, Lord? But inherent within that is sometimes to step back and say, but not my will, your will be done. That if the cup does come, that if the temptation or testing does come, it is because the Lord has sovereignly ordained it to glorify himself. And therefore, we must receive it as such. So, ultimately, we are asking that the Lord's presence and power would always be known to us and that we would always be able to glorify him and that we would be spared of being cut off from him, that we would be spared of being blinded to his presence for even a moment. That is to understand how great and glorious the gift is. See, I don't, I don't think we care near enough about the glory of God. In fact, I know we don't, and I'm with you, all right? So don't hear me saying that I'm coming down on you about this. I, I wrestle with this as well. If I cared more about the glory of God, what would my life really look like? What would worship look like? How would I approach these things? And so Thomas Watson, Puritan, in his book on the Lord's Prayer says this. He says, Our Savior has taught us in all our distresses to pray to God for a cure. 
He only knows what our troubles are and can give us help from trouble. He only that laid the burden on can take it off. So what is the main concern in this petition? Is it fear? Are we praying this because we're afraid to be tested and tempted? Or is it that we are more concerned with being in a position where we would not glorify the Lord our God? Where we would do or say or experience something that would separate us from him, not for an eternity, but even for a moment? Would that that would be our desire throughout the day. Would that this petition would always be fast upon our lips for that purpose, right? That as we walk into every situation, as we walk into difficult circumstances, that what we would pray is, Lord, as I go into this meeting that I know is going to be tough, there are some tough things going to be said and hurled about but lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Let me not speak in a way that is going to dishonor or, or, or fail to glorify you. Would that this would be our perspective on so many things, so many things that we take for granted. See, mightn't the deliverance from temptation or testing be some of our affluence, some of our good things? See, we never consider the good things. Would that we would say of even our children, Lord, let me not dishonor you in how I idolize my children. Lead me from that temptation and testing. Let my identity be solely in Christ and not in my children or my job or my church or my position or what people think of me. May it be solely in you. Our best means of defense here is prayer, the means of grace. The word read, studied, meditated on, preached, prayed, sung, experienced in full. The sacraments, baptism, to be reminded of our baptism, to improve upon what it means to be raised to newness of life in Christ. The Lord's table that strengthens, strengthens and nourishes our faith. Prayer. A means of grace, an opportunity that Christ purchased with his own broken body and blood that we could come boldly before the throne of grace to receive exactly what we need in a time of trouble. So as we finish this petition and turn to the doxology, my hope is that you would take time this day, this Lord's day, and maybe even in the days ahead, to ask the Lord, what are, what are the places where I am being tempted and tested and I don't even know it? Where am I at most risk, Lord, to fail to glorify you? Do you have the courage to pray that? Hold me accountable too. It's a prayer I need to pray. It's a prayer that I am not. Uh, in fact, I'm probably in a, 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 an even worse position in some respects because the trappings are myriad And so I would love for us as a church to wrestle with that reality and know that we would grow from that. 
And I know that many of you, as you struggle with that, please come talk to us as elders. If there's some way, and deacons as well, if there's some way we can serve you as you wrestle through some of this stuff and you say, I don't know what to do with this. I feel like I'm so far in, I don't know how to step out of it or I don't know how to deal with it now that I find myself here in the midst of this temptation and testing. Let us serve you in that if we can. Turn to those you trust. Turn to those who will pray for you and give the word back to you as a means of grace. Now, as we turn to the last part, which is the, considered the doxology, where we say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and glory. Amen. Now, I, I want to be careful not to get tangled up into an issue with this, because this is actually not present in most of the earliest manuscripts. And this has caused some consternation in one of our members who discovered there's several phrases in your Bible that have a little footnote that say, this ain't really part of the original manuscripts and was added somewhere along the way. Now let me say this. Here's why I'm okay with the doxology. Here's why the Westminster Divines are okay with the doxology. It comes essentially from 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 11. So let me read that for you. And then we'll talk about it for just a moment. This is David who is preparing to transition leadership to Solomon and the temple is going to be built and he's not going to be able to be a part of it. And so he is giving his final praises unto the Lord his God, which that's pregnant with meaning. But this is only part of it. I would encourage you sometime this week, go read 1 Chronicles 29 um, so you can get the full kind of breadth of it. I feel like in quoting 1 Chronicles 29 that we should kind of pour something out for Sam Larson because these are the books he loved most and quoted often. And so uh, what an opportunity to be able to, to pay homage to him. Listen to what 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 11 says. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So in the same way as we finish this prayer, it would have been common for us to conclude a prayer with a doxology. And so uh, was this added by divine inspiration? I trust that it was because it's pretty consistent. And so for us to pray in concluding this prayer, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, amen, is for us to confess that every single solitary petition will someday give way to the fullness of God and his glory. That there will come a day when there will be petitions no more, when we will have in full what we have only glimpsed at in part. That which we have looked at through a mirror, a glass, half darkly, we will now see in the fullness of its majesty and it will all be done, everything made new. New heavens, new earth. We will at long last dwell with the Lord our God. So when we pray this doxology, we are saying, Lord, may it all be true. May it all come true so that we at long last will be set free. And that there will be no need for petitions anymore. So what do we learn from Matthew 6, 13? One. We learn that we are weak, even in seeking to preserve ourselves from temptation and the evil one. Just because we're forgiven doesn't mean we've become superhuman. It doesn't mean that we've become super Christian. It just means that we are all the more aware of our weakness. 
I've heard a lot of Christians say that as they mature, one of the interesting things is, is not that your sin gets smaller, but that it grows larger. I used to think as a young Christian, probably much like Zophar or Elihu from Job, that that was a load of hooey. Why in the world would God be ugly to us and make us more and more aware of our sin? Who does that? What neurotic being does something like that? I think that was probably my Zen Christian phase, which was not good. Right, Susan? And so, so what I have learned is, no, that's true. And praise God, it's true. That it's not about being neurotic, but it's about me being um, able to just recognize how deep the Father's love for me. That given the magnitude of my sin, which grows with seemingly with each passing year, that he would, knowing all that I would do in this life and not do, that he would love me in so dark a circumstance. What a great God that he would give us this prayer, that he would give us these petitions, that he would answer such things as these. Secondly, we learn that God continues to be our sovereign help in the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. This is where the beautiful work of the Holy Spirit doesn't oftentimes get celebrated. It's the Holy Spirit, you see, who helps us in our sanctification. We always want to talk about the Holy Spirit like showing up and making people talk in funny languages and do backflips and bark and gold teeth grow in. That's not the main work of the Holy Spirit as it turns out. The main work of the Holy Spirit is to help us wrestling, wandering pilgrims survive between the now and the not yet and to grow more into the fullness of the person of Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that we should celebrate most. Thirdly, we learn that God's glory as displayed in our lives by far is to be our greatest concern. And if it's not, Christian, what is? And if something other than the glory of God is somehow more important to you, then you're going to have to deal with that or have it dealt with in temptation and testing at the hands of the evil one or in the hands of an angry God. J.C. Ryle um, concludes all of this incredibly well in his Expository Thoughts in the Gospels, Volume 1. Listen to what he says that we should, we should take from the Lord's Prayer. He says, And now let us all examine ourselves and see whether we really desire to have the things which we are taught to ask for in the Lord's Prayer. Thousands, it may be feared, repeat these words daily as a form, but never consider what they're saying. They care nothing for the glory, the kingdom, or the will of God. They have no sense of dependence, sinfulness, weakness, or danger. They have no love or charity towards their enemies. And yet, they repeat the Lord's Prayer. These things ought not be so. May we resolve that by God's help, our hearts shall go together with our lips. Happy is he who can really call God his Father through Jesus Christ his Savior and can therefore say heartfelt amen to all that the Lord's Prayer contains. My hope and my prayer for every single one of us, while this has been a short journey through the Lord's Prayer, while this is maybe for some of you even an introduction into some of the depths of the Lord's Prayer, is that you would never again pray it without thinking about what it is you're saying and whether or not you actually are willing to live out what each petition calls you to be and do. 
That you would no longer pray it as a Gentile who is heaping up foolish words for no one but himself. That you would no longer pray it worried about what the person next to you is thinking as to how elegant you sound or eloquent you sound in saying these words. But that you would be concerned for but one audience and that is God. And that you would be concerned but for one thing and that's God's glory. And that we all to that could say, Amen. Let's pray.